Welcome to another episode of the Presbyterian and Reformed Churchman. I'm Pastor George, and I have ruling elder Trevor Lawrence uh, with us. We're going to be talking this new overture that is on the General Assembly website called Overture 1. Now, you may say there already was an Overture 1. Yes, that Overture 1 has been rescinded by the authors of it and has uh, been replaced. And so we're going to talk about that journey a little bit. And for those that are unaware of it, Overture 1 has to do with testimony in church courts and who can testify, particularly around atheists, but but just in general, who can testify in the church courts. And so we'll get into that. Also, uh, Trevor Lawrence, while he's a ruling elder, he also has a PhD and has written a book on the imprecatory Psalms. And I, I think it's called Cursing with God. Is that right, Trevor? That's correct. Great. And so hopefully we get to talk about that a little also. So Trevor, thanks for being on. Yeah, it's a pleasure. I hope that this uh, dialogue is fruitful and can be helpful. It can be a blessing to the wider church. Perfect, perfect. Actually, why I wanted to have you on, I I think you know, I did uh, an episode with our ruling elder Kevin Miller when you guys launched your first uh, overture. But part of this podcast, Trevor, is it's uh, I always bill it as with ruling elders for ruling elders and just trying to uh, encourage ruling elders to be churchmen. And, and why this topic? Because I think it really does highlight our polity. Now, it is a very important topic, and we'll get into that. But it highlights how our polity works about something going to General Assembly. Um, not so, so something similar went to GA this year, and it failed. And so presbyteries and churches have gone back to the drawing board, as we've seen uh, we saw that with the human sexuality overtures, and now we're seeing that with some of these around judicial process. And then, in a in a probably a unique case, y'all submitted the overture, and now you've submitted a new version of it. And so, uh, let's let's talk this in general. So, what in your estimation did the overture that went last year? Why did that fail? And what was it trying to correct? And and as I say that, I'm going to try to pull up. I think it was Overture 13. Do you remember if that's the case? Yeah, that sounds right. Okay. Yeah. Um, well, I, it's interesting. This is sort of a an exemplary model of how our polity works because this Overture goes back even farther than our last GA. If I remember correctly, a version of the same Overture was submitted in 2021. It was referred to the next assembly for advice from the DASA committee the and so we've had 2021 2022 it didn't get through overtures uh 2023 it failed with a minority report and now uh in advance of 2024 we've had uh the process that you've laid out so this is a multi-year process where uh, it seems like almost every option we have for dealing with an overture has we've ticked the box for this particular issue. The main thing that this overture has, has been aiming for in all of its iterations is expanding our, our witness eligibility so that all persons, regardless of belief in God and a supernatural state of rewards and punishments, are able to bring their testimony before the courts. Um, that's, uh, in, in my estimation and in the estimation of those who've been bringing these, a, a gap in our current process, um, and and we would like to see our courts permitted to receive witness testimony, no matter where it comes from. 
uh, we think that that's a way to ensure that our courts are able to get all of the information, all of the testimony, all of the evidence that they need in order to render just and true verdicts about the matters before them. So that's that's the main hope. A lot of the wiggling and revision has been about how exactly we go about doing that. But the main focus has always been the same, uh, which is to expand witness eligibility so that our courts can hear uh, witnesses regardless of belief. Now, your question about why Overture 13 failed, why any Overture fails at the assembly level is is probably a really complicated mixture of reasons and dynamics. I, I would I don't I don't necessarily have a, a hard and fast take on that. But I will say that it's it's simply difficult for any measure to pass the assembly. I mean if we look at the number of overtures that are uh, given to the assembly each year and then the number that are brought to presbyteries uh, because they're approved by that assembly, it's a small fraction. Uh, so it's always an uphill climb to make a change in our BCO. Uh, I'll also say that with, with all of the discussions about sexuality overtures, Overture 13 was not one that I think was on a lot of people's radar in the lead up to GA. Uh, and I think functionally what that meant was when we had the floor debate with the minority report, for, for many commissioners, that may have been the first opportunity for sustained consideration and dialogue over the technicalities and the processes that were involved there. I, I also think it's simply the case that uh, while floor debate at the assembly level is an important privilege of the assembly, as you know, it it can go in all sorts of different directions. Anybody who stands at the mic can speak to an issue from any particular angle or perspective. Uh, sometimes those speeches are remarkably helpful. Sometimes they, they may muddy the waters rather than clarifying. And I think whenever that happens, you end up having to battle through a considerable amount of confusion over what the real issue is, what an overture is actually aiming for, what are the potential implications and consequences. Uh, and so I, I think it's it's kind of predictable that uh, in especially an overture related to judicial process, which can sometimes be more convoluted than other aspects of our polity, um, you know, it's it's an uphill climb and a, and a challenge to have clarity and consensus uh, when the the first time the assembly is really truly considering that together is in floor debate right before a vote on the motion. Right, right. In in a sense, it's like when the overture first shows up on a topic that almost initiates a conversation, even though there's a lot of ongoing conversations in different circles and whether it be social media or different presbyteries, but then it becomes a reality and it needs to be tossed around. Uh, so the the issue, just just for people tuning in, the, the issue is if, if you see BCO 35-1 here, uh, it used to allow anybody to testify as long as they believe in the existence of God and a future state of rewards and punishments. And I think both, if there are sides on this issue, everybody... Uh, sees there there's an issue with that because on the one hand, like they said in the assembly, like why allow 
Muslims and Buddhists, and those are, I don't know, those are the only two that always come up, the Muslims and the Buddhists to, to testify in church courts, which believe in, well, I'm not sure Buddhists believe in, in, a, in a God, but not an atheist. And so this overture struck that out of the, the language, such as to allow anybody to testify that the court allowed, I guess, would be the way to word it, right? Yeah, and I think you put your finger on a tension that was in and that is still in the existing policy is that it's not merely Christian theists that are permitted to serve as witnesses, but non-Christian theists as well. And so the the question then becomes, well, why why permit the testimony of non-Christian theists and disallow non-theists? Um, it would seem that the logic that would permit us to extend uh, uh, the privilege of testifying as a witness before our courts to non-Christian theists uh, could could be extended as well to non-theists as well. What was the issue with this? I know, again, you'd already explained why something could fail General Assembly. There's, right. But like what in particular was the, the fault of this one? There are there are two things I think that came up in the aftermath of the assembly. Just listening to discussions, seeing online chatter as people were sort of processing the decision. One thing that I heard that I thought was profoundly honest and helpful was some people just mentioned that they have a conservative disposition towards parts of our BCO that have been there for a long time. Uh, and and what I think they were trying to articulate is that when something has been there for a considerable amount of time there's there's a sizable hurdle that needs to be overcome in order for them to understand the issue and see the urgency of making a change i don't fault people for that and in fact i think it's helpful for us to verbalize that sometimes that is our posture towards some issues frankly i identify with that disposition in a lot of ways the other major concern that i heard coming out of ga was that we that the proposal could create a scenario where non-theists are being asked to make an unlawful oath in the courts of the church uh, and that seemed to be a sticking point that was verbalized by a number of parties um, a, a, a concern that you know by expanding witness eligibility to atheists those who don't believe in god uh, that we would we would have a situation where we are violating uh, Westminster Confession 22 uh, and supporting people taking an unlawful oath in our courts. Frankly, I don't think the overture actually did that, but I recognize that that was a concern. And so that's been one of the uh, elements we've tried to address and find compromise on with the later iterations of this overture. So talk back to the process. So Trinity is the church where you serve mm -hmm. as a ruling elder. You came back from GA and worked on an improvement to this one. And what was your, what was your process to do that? There were several folks who were motivated to see this change, have another chance at going through. So uh, we, we got together, we traded emails we had conversations. We tried to brainstorm about how can we take seriously the concerns that were raised on the floor of GA 
and in the aftermath, particularly about the potential for unlawful oaths, and come up with a new version of this basic proposal that could speak to those, that could assuage those concerns. Uh, several members of that group also reached out via email, phone, or Zoom to folks who spoke publicly against the minority report at GA, uh, wanted to get their input on, is there a way forward? What actually are, are the, the sticking points with this proposal? Is it the substance or is it the implications of the substance? Not the what, but the how we might have to get there. And, and that group solicited uh, feedback. Hey, what do you think about this? Do you have a, a suggestion for what could make it stronger? So that collaborative process uh, sought to honor the concerns that were raised and come up with a solution that had a better chance at, at finding consensus. So what was the difference between Overture 13 at the General Assembly and your first, your first iteration around of trying to improve it? Right. So because the concern was about the possibility of non-theists taking unlawful oaths, the draft that was passed in August simply took out oaths entirely and made a and offered a universally applicable solemn promise that any Christian, non-Christian theist or non-theist could lawfully take before the court. And it added a stipulation that the court itself would charge any potential witness uh, that whether they believe in God or not, uh, the, the presence of God is among us and that God will hold all people accountable for the truthfulness of their testimony. So what it sought to do was, again, big aim, expand witness eligibility, but deal with that concern about unlawful oaths by simply making the charge and script for addressing witnesses a solemn promise rather than an oath. Right, so it would, it would treat Christians and non-Christians uh, the, the same in the process. They would, they would be given the same statement. It says, do you solemnly promise? It removes in the presence of God so that you're not reading that to an atheist. And I guess the, the assumption here is the Christian is, always knows that they need to tell the truth. And so maybe that that didn't have to be in there. Was that was that was it was part of like was some of this expediency just to streamline the section to work for everybody? Yeah, I, you're exactly right. So and this gets into sort of the rationale for how you write an overture. The, I think the basic rule is the more complicated an overture, the less likely it is that it passes. So in a desire to not make 35.8 bigger and more bloated than it had to be, we labored to find a way to have one uh, exemplary script, one exemplary promise that could be made that would be applicable in all situations. Now the concern was, well, is that effectively prohibiting Christians from taking a lawful oath? Uh, in my estimation, no. The, the proposal would not prohibit any Christian from beginning his or her testimony by saying, I would like to actually swear an oath before God and before this court. Um, 
but yeah, we we were trying to come up with an exemplary promise that would that would fit all situations, including again, I'm going to bring it up that pesky situation that's already in our polity, where a non-Christian theist could presumably be given the exemplary oath that's already in 35.8. We thought that by cleaning up 35.8 in this way, we were actually addressing that potential problem as well, and asking neither the non-theist nor the non-Christian theist to make an unlawful oath. So you, you guys presented this at Piedmont Tried Presbytery in August. It passed. It was the first overture for next year on the, the website. Uh, it, it did receive pushback in our presbytery, I think, um, for a number of reasons. Uh, one I remember is because it says it, it removes in the presence of, it's almost like it removes God from the quote-unquote oath. Um, we hadn't thought through, I don't think, that you could could have given an actual oath to a believer and uh, just have this promise to the unbeliever. But nevertheless, it did pass in Piedmont Triad. It became Overture 1. What happened between August and November to make it, to, to for you guys to further refine it? Yeah. So part of our motive in having this uh, passed very early on in the process leading up to the 2024 General Assembly is that we, we wanted to have the most time possible for continued discussion about this issue. And, and we assumed that the best way to do that was to have an overture like this one uh, up on the PCA General Assembly resource page as Overture 1, initiating discussion, dialogue, debate, podcast episodes, blog posts in response. What, what we hoped that that would do is it would further clarify any remaining issues so that further revisions, clarifications, polishing uh, would be possible. I'm happy to say that I think that actually happened. Uh, we got feedback about that particular proposal. And uh, as I intimated before, one of the one of the key uh, points that was made is it, it seems as if that's, this has the potential of removing oaths entirely from our courts. Uh, again, um, I think that that may have been a, a case of hearing the overture saying something that it didn't explicitly say. Nevertheless, practically speaking, that was becoming a sticking point. And we had an opportunity to say, okay, can we listen? Can we honor these concerns? Is there a way that we can achieve, again, the overarching aim while addressing and assuaging uh, the the questions and concerns that are being raised. So the whereas before we had sought to make 35.8 as simple and brief as possible, in response to the feedback that we received, it seemed like there was an appetite uh, among a variety of folks to actually have two different exemplary scripts, uh, one that would keep the oath in God's name as the default for all Christian witnesses, barring conscientious objection, and then a second alternative script, which would be a solemn promise for any non-Christian witness who would not be able to make an, a lawful oath according to uh, Westminster Confession 22. I think that does sum it up really well. So I'm looking at your overture now. It's um, 
It primarily modifies 35.1 and 35.8. Why, why did Overture 13 try to deal with 35.6? Did the BCO numbering get moved around after GA? That's exactly right. Okay. Uh, and frankly, I can tell you that drafting this overture for the Piedmont Triad Presbytery, uh, it sometimes felt like we were running in circles because you're looking at an old version of the BCO, but the assembly in the summer had just uh, accepted and approved other amendments to Chapter 35 that rearranged the numbering system. And so you're having to make a proposal in the overture that uses the new numbering system that hasn't yet been published in the updated BCO. So yes, that's exactly why. Okay. Yeah, just to some of your comments, in, in the August uh, Piedmont Triad press tree meeting, and I and I said it on the, the last episode, I, I questioned like what was the quote unquote rushed. I think I understand you guys' heart about that because it, it actually did exactly if, um, what you described there is it started a conversation a couple podcasts covered it. There were some questions about it. There were concerns about removing God from the promise. So do you solemnly promise in the presence of God was originally removed? I think you guys thought because you put it in the, in the statement that the court shall inform the witness that their promise is made in the presence of God, that would cover it. But there were still concerns. So... Basically, your criteria is any person who swears or promises, so swears making an oath for the Christian or promises to the non-Christian to testify truthfully, can be called as a witness. And then you come down and you see the two, the two differences there. For the believer, actually, you actually improve what is read from the current BCO, because the current BCO actually just said, do you solemnly promise because the implication was your it's an oath for a christian but you say do you solemnly swear so you change the word promise to swear and then the rest of it stays the same uh, it goes on it says if however the witness cannot take an oath either for conscientious reasons or because he is not a christian and thus not able to take a lawful oath invoking god the moderator shall then ask the witness the following do you sw solemnly promise that you will declare the truth the whole truth and nothing but the truth according to the best of your knowledge in the matter in which you are called to witness and that would be read to anyone else besides a christian correct yes and i think you're right we we did aim yes we're we're after a certain objective of expanding witness eligibility in this overture but to to what you just said we also tried to clarify where the current provision was already more ambiguous um you can see that uh, 35 8 as it stands simply charges an oath or affirmation in the following or like terms what that means is that it's up to the discretion of the moderator and the court to determine how um, any potential witness, Christian or non-Christian theist, would be charged and what promise or oath that they would take. What we wanted to do was provide something here that clarifies mm -hmm. both a, a an oath script and a solemn promise script, and that offers that statement in the middle specifying when it's appropriate for a solemn promise rather than an oath to be made. That's in the case of any Christian with a conscientious objection to swearing an oath, but also any non-Christian, whether theist or non-theist. Gotcha. Gotcha. 
So if, for everybody listening, again, if you go to the General Assembly, the PCAAC.org and go to General Assembly and go to Overtures, this is in place where Overture 1 is. It is actually called Overture 1 on the PCA website, but there's a note that's saying this replaces the other Overture 1. So this is the one we need to be referring to. What do you think the pushback will be given okay you've you've separate you, you've cleaned up the fact that in the past you could have buddhists testifying in our courts perhaps or spiritual people or whoever new age people even uh but not atheists you've cleared that up now anybody is there a line in here that says the court still has the right to reject somebody as a witness Yes, uh, and mm -hmm. this is an important point, is, is that, that? Thir 35.1 mm -hmm. says that either party has the right to object to a witness, and it's ultimately at the court's discretion how they consider and rule on that objection. I'll also point out, I think, I think it's BCO 31.5 that already has certain character considerations that need to be um, kept in in mind, uh, that may be the wrong one. I reference it uh, in a certain part of the overture. 31.8. Okay, let me, let me uh, look at that. 31.8 offers specifications about the great caution that ought to be exercised in receiving accusations uh, or, or testimony from folks who are known to be of um, poor character. That's that's still in play, and and the court is to honor that warning in thirty one eight. It's also important to remember that, as it stands, I believe it's thirty five five notes that it's up to the court to determine the degree of credibility to be attached to any and all evidence and testimony that's offered before it. So what, what? we've tried thirty five five. Yeah, yeah, it belongs to it the there. court to judge the degree of credibility to be attached to all evidence. That that's a change too, it looks like. That that was actually moved from 351 and made its own um item in a new 355. Um so that was just rearranged, but it was already there in the BCO. What what that means though is that there are multiple safeguards that by expanding eligibility we nevertheless have the right for either party to object to any witness. The court is the one that decides how that objection will be ruled upon. In 31, there are character qualifications that need to be factored in to how testimony mm -hmm. is received. And then 35.5 also charges the court that it's your responsibility essentially, to determine the degree of credibility that's attached to any evidence. So this isn't a flattening out of testimony. It's not a, a taking away of the prerogatives of the court. It's actually call, a, a provision that's calling upon the court to exercise those prerogatives, uh, but not to prohibit any witness from giving testimony before it outright. Right. Okay. So, again, back to the pushback. What do you think it could be? If you can think of your uh, people that may oppose this for certain reasons, what may they be? Fortunately, I think 
the result of this dialogical uh, attempted consensus building process has been that ancillary concerns that are secondary to the main objective are no longer going to be the points of concern, those sticking points that they were following GA and after the August proposal. I think by listening to those questions and concerns that were raised in the wake of those uh, overtures, uh, we've we've addressed the the concerns about unlawful odes, but also about removing odes entirely. And we found a new way uh, that we can achieve the goal uh, without you know, falling into either of those pitfalls. What that means is that I think the major pushback is going to be from folks who actually disagree with the substance of the overture, who, who have a disagreement about whether non-theists should be permitted to testify before the court. Frankly, I think that is a positive development because it means that we're actually going to have debate and disagreement over the essence, the substantive issue in view. And the overture hasn't presented a proposal that unfortunately distracts from that issue by raising concerns in all sorts of other areas. I, I suppose there might also be uh, potential pushback from anyone who would assert that an oath is always necessary uh, for a witness when coming before the court to testify. Uh, but I would simply note that our BCO already permits testimony to be given with an affirmation in like terms, precisely because it permits Christians with conscientious objections to oath-taking and non-Christian theists, and it, it gives the, the court the, the leeway to offer an affirmation in like terms. So uh, I'd say the objection that oaths are always necessary um, would not be consistent with even our current polity uh, and would require a change in the other direction. Um, but to the substantive disagreement about whether non-theists should be allowed to testify, uh, I, I think that that is the sticking point. And it's, it's my contention and the contention of the overture and those who support it that that could be a, a blessing to our courts in their pursuit of truth and justice. Okay. Uh, I'll, I'll try to think of, of some potential pushback. I, at, the, at the assembly, there were some that were concerned with the idea that the court has no jurisdiction, and I don't know if I'm using the right word, authority. No, jurisdiction, yeah, I understand what you're saying. Yeah. Yeah, over <laughs> a person, like in, in, in civil courts, if somebody perjures themselves, they're, you know, there's a, uh, I guess that's a felony or misdemeanor. There, there's a crime. It's a treated as a crime. Whereas in our courts, we have no authority over uh, the atheist. And then and that's why the the current BCO doesn't deal with that either, because we have no authority over the Buddhist and the Muslim. And, and that's that's precisely the point is that objection was raised. Uh, but I, that doesn't seem to me to be relevant to the issue at hand, precisely because we already welcome testimony from people over whom we have no authority or jurisdiction. And so the right. question is, why would we draw a, a potentially arbitrary line excluding a non-theist from offering testimony when there are all sorts of other witnesses who are not part of the covenant community? They are non-Christian theists, not under the authority of our courts, uh, but but we would welcome 
and then judge the degree of credibility to be attached to their testimony. Right. This this he, is just a, a call saying we can do that for atheists as well. What do you know the history behind this this section of the BCO? Does it it uh, it probably goes back to the PCUS and and before? Would you say? That is not an area that I'm an expert in. I know that there are websites and books where you can trace the genealogy of certain aspects of our BCO, but that's not something I'm familiar with. I, I do, however, think it's important to recognize, and the rationale in uh, all versions of the both the Minority Report and these overtures have, have pointed out that a stipulation like our current BCO makes sense in a general Christendom context. Yes, right. You know, in, in in a society where the assumptions, the way of life, the worldview, and the ethics of Christianity are by and large accepted without question, they're part of the water that everyone's swimming in, uh, it would make sense that um, someone who does not believe in God or a future state of reward and punishment would be seen as something of a societal and cultural outlier who might be regarded with a, a higher degree of suspicion than other neighbors. I just simply note that, you know, our context, our time has changed. Uh, people often talk of the rise of the nuns, you know, those who profess no uh, supernatural belief in God or anything else. Uh, that's, that's an increasingly common uh, phenomenon in the West and in America in particular. And frankly, I think we need to be praying and hoping that people just like that will be populating our churches, that they'll be visiting, that they'll be sitting under the ministry of the word, that they'll be joining uh, with our people in life and relationship, in friendship, and a, a kind of a real relational communion on their way to meeting the Lord Jesus and coming under his rule and reign and grace. What that what that means, though, is that those folks who we pray will be in contact with our churches um, may very well have an opportunity to say something to our courts about what they see and witness, or what has been done to them or against them, uh, that can can help us pursue the truth, pursue justice, or potentially acquit the innocent who've been unjustly accused as well. One thing I'm happy about is I'm happy for this to go to General Assembly because I hopefully I'll be able to sit in on overtures and, and hear the discussion and hopefully I'll be able to hear it. Uh, I'll definitely be able to hear it on the floor of GA. And so I appreciate that. My my the sticking point for me was never about that we we hold no authority over the person testifying, so we can't punish them if they if they perjure themselves. That was never my issue. My concern is what is the nature of church discipline and and a court in the church of jesus christ and um i just struggle with the idea that a non-believer could stand a non-believer who by definition does not recognize the lordship of christ can can stand in his court um so the court to me is not a simply a means to an end it is a means to getting justice at justice and truth but it is a ecclesial or ecclesiastical function that is very profound and the idea and and so when whenever i've said that to somebody somebody will say well we already allow again jews or muslims and buddhists i said well yeah that, that's i think the bco needs to needs to clarify that so that's the tension for me 
but I'm happy. But what I recognize is there are guys that, you know, again, if there's camps in the PCA or sides, there's guys who I align philosophically with who don't have a problem with this. And so that's where I want to hear the debate. I want to be convinced of what's right. Yeah, I hear I hear that. I think for me, it's helpful to make certain distinctions, you know, because when you use that language of standing or stand in the court, different people can hear that meaning different things. Uh, I mean, who sits in judgment in the court of the church? Well, it's it's the ordained ministers and elders. Witnesses don't have that kind of standing. Yeah, it's only those who have been ordained and set apart for that service who have uh, that kind of juridical standing in the court. We could also ask, who is the court concerned with? Well, they are particularly concerned with the covenant community, those who bear the name of the Lord Jesus. In other words, ecclesiastical courts are never going to be concerning themselves with the conduct or behavior of someone who doesn't profess to be part of Jesus's church and hasn't been baptized into its membership. What we're talking about with witness eligibility is is a third classification, and that is that the ordained members who populate the court and who are concerned with uh, exercising judgment over the life of the covenant community are welcoming witnesses, regardless of belief, to resource them in their pursuit of truth and justice in uh, the unfolding of that juridical task and responsibility. So I think I think that that can be helpful. That may not assuage your your particular concern, but I do think it's helpful to 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 note that allowing a witness to speak and for the credibility of their testimony to be judged by the court isn't the same thing as giving them standing in that court. They aren't to exercise the responsibilities that are reserved for the ordained members of that court. Uh, but it's it's just my conviction uh, that we would do well not to restrict the court unnecessarily in its attempts to execute the tasks that it's been given. Um, and so if there is truth to be found in the words and witness of somebody who is a non-Christian theist or non-theist, it's, it's better to allow the court to hear that and then to exercise its responsibility of judging that testimony with clarity, precision, and wisdom uh, so that they can do justice uh, for the peace and purity of the church, for guarding the flock of God, for exalting the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, and also for protecting the victims of wrongdoing um, at the hands of people who bear the name of Jesus. Well, I appreciate your heart in that for sure. And and um, we ought to be people who care about truth. We ought to be people who decide things justly, vindicate people that need vindication. I, I just wish there was a way to collect, garner evidence in a different fashion such that we're not putting people in the court. I understand your point about standing. I don't know if there's like a deposition process. I mean, already evidence comes into the court that's not simply testimony. Uh, emails, social media posts, um, police evidence, a rape kit, whatever, that is already admissible within our courts. And so I, I don't know if there's a, a way to do that with testimony itself. But again, I'm happy to hear the debate. I, uh, I, I know I've 
it's forced me to think through this this stuff um can can i just say yeah, that that yeah. last thing that it's i think it's forced everybody everybody who's been following the discussion it's forced everybody to think through the issues at deeper and deeper levels i think oftentimes we can begin with an impulse an instinct or an intuition that basically says huh i don't i don't know if i like that or mm, that that sort of rubs me the wrong way. But what can happen over the course of months and over the course of public dialogue is that our own positions are clarified and the true issues rise to the top. And I think that level of clarity, regardless of whether somebody agrees with me or the proposed overture, I think that that level of clarity about the issues at hand is worthy of celebration in, it, in its own right. Yeah, yeah. Also, just for listeners, and again, because I, I try to put this out there for people who aren't in on the discussions, you know, th this is again for within the church. So crimes committed are handled by the law, by the civil authorities. If if there's if there's abuse uh, against a minor in your church, if there's sexual abuse, I mean, that needs to go, and your your sessions need to be sending that to the the civil authorities and letting them handle it but then there is there is still the ecclesi ecclesiastical hey maybe you're a doctor you're, you're a phd when do you use ecclesial and when do you use ecclesiastical uh, when the spirit hits me <laughs> if, okay. if uh, maybe well, with more more thought i could come up with a better answer uh, yeah the same I, I think so technically i think when i'm referring to just the the church at large i will use ecclesial basically as a synonym for like churchy okay. ecclesiastical often carries uh, connotations of more formal processes and institutional uh, policies polity yeah so like okay. ecclesiastical law or ecclesiastical <laughs> polity um, but i talk about the ecclesial community yeah, the churchy I think, community I, I that might be a good guideline then yeah thanks uh but like like even at our church we we had a case like that where there was gross and heinous abuse that happened before I got here, but we had to deal with when, while I was here that the civil authorities, I mean, the person ended up in jail, but the church still needed to speak into that and court records and all that were, you know, are, are part of the evidence that it's part of the, the specifications and the evidence. And so, um, I, as that's we, a, good. Oh, can I, yeah, that's yeah, just, speak, that's yeah. a really important thing to remind people of and that's where the dasa report is an incredible resource because it it outlines how we're to understand and be on the lookout and identify uh, abuse in its various forms when it happens but it also gives tremendously helpful guidelines on responding to that reporting that and then shepherding in the aftermath of that and and you're absolutely right that legal crimes have to be given to legal authorities. And yeah, sometimes documentary evidence will uh, emerge that can be helpful as the court then does its task. Uh, I'll simply note that there are all sorts of matters that are the business of church courts that aren't the business of the state and are not um, criminal violations, um, but also even when documentary evidence can be offered, uh, documentary evidence can't answer questions. Documentary evidence can't be cross-examined. You can't ask it to expand on a certain part of its story. 
Uh, and, and that's where I think even in situations where definitive documentary evidence can be acquired, opening the door for anyone to be able to offer helpful and relevant testimony to the court is a, a blessing precisely because they can expand. They can answer questions. They can be cross-examined so that the court can get all of the information that it needs in order to make its decision justly. Yes. Yeah. And that's, that's a good point. So there's also an overture four out there, Trevor. And, um, I think it's four. That's right. And overture four. Yeah. That wants to establish a study committee for judicial rules changes. And in it, it's anticipating that there's going to be a lot of changes, uh, coming. And so yours being the first, and of course we've already passed some, we passed uh, some have already entered our Book of Church order, and, mm -hmm. and since that, since the DASA report had come out. Uh, by the way, I will say the DASA report. Not only can you get it on a PCA website in a PDF, but they have it. Um, CDM now has it in bound form, so you could buy oh, it as wow. a book Great. too. So, oh, here it is. Be, be it resolved that the 51st General Assembly postpone consideration of all overtures touching Book of Church Order BCO chapters 27 to 46, Rules of Discipline. And I guess it wants to study those rules. I'm not going to read all the thing there. Mm -hmm. And it wants to form a committee of seven people out of this list. And you're on this list as a rule. Yeah, it wants, it wants, I think, to, to form a committee with all of those people. Um, but that would require suspending REO 9-4, which limits membership to seven. That's oh. where that seven number is coming in. Okay, it wants every one of those that is willing to serve. And yeah, that's right. Appa apparently, uh, y'all were contacted. Yes, uh, I was. I was reached out to by the author of this overture in the lead up, and gave my consent to to be included in the overture and potentially on that study committee if the assembly elects to form it. Right, and so people should go in there, look, there's some biographies on, on each of these guys or some basic details. There's ruling elders and teaching elders. Uh, Fred Greco's on there. Um, Trevor, you're on there. What other names? Howie Donahoe's on there. In a sense, you're, you're being called to be a part of this group. But if, if this passes, I assume this means if this passes, that means your overture one will be put on hold. So you're willing to be a part of this group. What's your what's your assessment of this whole thing? Yeah, you put your finger right on it. When I was contacted, I said, well, you know, if this passes, then Overture 1, that several people have put so much legwork and dialogue into getting into a, a positive place, uh, might potentially be roped in and delayed even further. Um, I will say, I think Overture 4 is a fine idea. I think especially if there are a number of detailed and interrelated judicial changes and often you know folks who know the bco know that a change to one chapter uh, implies that other parts of the bco have to be changed well there's a lot to navigate and that can be really overwhelming on the floor of the overtures committee when that committee all of a sudden starts trying to edit and fine-tune the language especially of ju judicially related Overture. So I think this study committee uh, that could potentially take a large group of those 
take a deep breath, spend a year talking about them, and then make a recommendation to the next assembly. That is, that's a fine idea. That could be a blessing to everyone involved. My hope, however, if I could write the script, is that we would be able to amend Overture 4 to not include Overture 1. And, and my, my reasoning is that this is not an overture that will be coming, a, a proposed judicial change coming before the assembly for the first time. Like I said before, this has history all the way back to 2021. And a version of this same type of overture uh, was before us in 21, 22, 23, and now is slated for 24 as well. That's going to be four years on top of that, the revisions that have been made from the Minority Report to the August Overture and now to the Revised Overture 1 do represent the fruit of dialogue, compromise, listening to feedback, and arriving at a consensus position. And my hope would be that folks who are eager to serve on overtures next year and to represent their presbytery would do the the work on the front end of following this discussion, seeing the development of this overture, and considering if it really does speak in, in a consensus way with something of a unifying voice to this question. I think the Overtures Committee, with so much time for dialogue on social media, with blogs, with podcasts like this one, in the lead-up to the 2024 GA, we have all the time and resources we need to hash out what we think about this matter. And I would love to see us go ahead and move on Overture 1, even if Overture 4 uh, is answered in the affirmative. Yeah, that's that's fair, Trev. You, <clears throat> because literally, you would, it was this, that would delay your Overture from becoming a reality for three years. Uh, not, not three years, but it would push it, put it three years out because it has to pass the assembly twice. That's right. It would it would require that the same issue come before the assembly for a fifth year and then wouldn't be uh, ratified and made part of the BCO if all the votes went its way until a sixth year. Yeah, you're exactly right. It does. It from 2021, it extends that window. And I get, you know, it's a it's a mantra, especially in overtures, that Presbyterianism is slow. I get <laughs> yes. that. I have experienced that. But we don't need Presbyterianism to be slower than it has to be. Mm -hmm. And I do think that we've seen um, a, a real fruitful level of discussion and debate about this issue that has the potential to bring clarity and a positive outcome uh, this coming summer. I could see, though, the heart behind this overture for, and I don't know this Presbyterian who authored this to know their... Um, I only know what, the, what it says, but there it is conceivable that the content of your overture is, everybody's happy with that. The problem could be that if there's other overtures trying to amend the same BCO sections, uh, 35 in particular, like how the numbering goes. And of course, we could always just say, well, common sense would, you would adapt the numbering, but I could see why it becomes a web. So that'll be interesting i also want to see how this plays out in overtures because and on the floor of the general assembly i guess overture four would have to be moved up in the docket what do you think you, you're you're a veteran on overtures what do you think is how will they handle these in order yeah i i hesitate 
normally there are people really well seasoned with a lot of expertise who are able to come up with a provisional docket for us that lays out a sensible order. I'll just say, I think you're right. Your instincts seem right, that it would make sense to speak to Overture 4. And, and perhaps uh, it, if it were amended to say that Overture 4 would encapsulate all overtures recommended to it by the assembly, that would allow the study committee to be provisionally formed. And then the overtures committee and the general assembly could recommend that specific overtures are handled uh, by it that that would seem to be a logical way forward but again i don't i don't pretend to to predict how the oc and the assembly are going to to work all those out right right and it could it could just play out i mean there's only six or seven overtures how many seven at this point which is not that many of course there'll be a few more i mean it could be that there's only one more or no more changes to these sections in the bco and this overture may not be needed Overture yeah, my four. understanding from from uh, the author of the overture is that there are several judicially related amendments in the works that that we will. I would predict that we would see presbyteries voting on them in the coming months, uh, which is precisely why overture overture four was sent to the the assembly first. Uh, is that it's predicting that there could be a mass of judicial overtures which. Um, the the study committee would then be able to help with okay okay well i want to i want to uh conclude this part of the conversation i think this is one of those i'm um, like a lot of us go to the assembly with our minds made up on things and sometimes people speak about that negatively but i just think i mean there is a sense that in this digital age we come prepared so it is harder to change our minds on the sure. floor. But this is one I, I, I really do want. Your overture is one I want to hear the debate and discussion on. Again, I'm, for me, it's it's centered around the, what is the nature of the church, of the court of Jesus Christ. I'm looking forward to the discussion, and uh, and, and my mind is not made up on it. Any final words yeah. on this before we go to talk about your book a little bit? Yeah, I mean, I, I do think you're right that it can be a blessing to have access to the text of these overtures. I mean, in some cases, with with the first draft of Overture 1, 10 months in advance of General Assembly, uh, and we can get clarity on those issues, what we think are, you know, the key points and, and the substantive issues for debate. I'll also, though, just point out that we need commissioners to be aware that really dynamic changes are made in those 24, 48 hours oh, leading up to floor debate at the General Assembly. Sometimes amendments are made by the OC or amendments are recommended by a minority report that really do change how something plays out. And that that requires that commissioners go to General Assembly prepared to do that work of acquainting themselves with proposed changes within the amendments so that then they can follow that debate, be involved in that debate and make uh, responsible, well-informed votes on those issues um, and not simply rely on prior texts of overtures, which may no longer be relevant specifically to the issue that's now before the assembly. It's a really dynamic time 
But one thing that I encourage folks whenever I'm talking to them is we need to see General Assembly as much as it's a time of relational connection and camaraderie. We need to see that we are there tasked with the work of the church. And that may mean putting off dinner with friends in order to dig into um, a report or uh, an overture text uh, that's going to be before the assembly in 60 minutes. And and that's a, a new matter that we need to give due thought to. Yes. Your book, do you have a copy of it there? I can... Uh, somewhere. Yeah. Oh, hold on. I almost made the classic Zoom move of yanking my computer down with my headphones. But yeah, here's <laughs> here's a copy from the shelf of Cursing with God. Uh, the subtitle is The Imprecatory Psalms and the Ethics of Christian Prayer. Okay, so how did how did that book come about? Tell us Tell us a little bit about it. Yeah, it's an interesting Genesis story. It actually started with a question from my wife. Um, early in our marriage, we uh, we decided that we were going to pray one psalm a night together before we went to bed. And we got all the way to Psalm 7, where it says, Arise, O Lord, you have appointed a judgment. And my wife looked at me and said, What are we supposed to do with that? And try as I may, I was not able to come up with a satisfactory answer for her or for myself. And I, I think what that ended up doing was it, it pinpointed a tension in me that I honor the Psalms as the word of God. I want to receive the Psalms and the ethics of the Psalms as they are commended to us in the text. But I don't have a clue what it looks like to pray for God's justice as a follower of a crucified king. And so that that started me on a years-long journey of digging into those psalms and the ethics of Christian prayer in order to try to try to resolve that for myself. This was an existential um, journey for me where I want to know how does God want me to pray according to his word? And as with so much of my work, I, I just tell other people, I, I invite you along uh, for the for the ride with me. Yeah. And so th was that your dissertation? Your it was. Okay. Yeah. So that question uh, from my wife, uh, eventually I preached uh, an imprecatory psalm to Trinity Church. And that was an opportunity to acquaint myself with the the landscape of interpretation and scholarship just a little bit. That ended up growing into a desire to press into it sort of full time for three years at a really academic and scholarly level. And to say, I, if, if I'm going to arrive at what is for me some sort of satisfactory answer, uh, I need to devote myself to this question until I, I find the, the, the gold at the bottom of this hole that I'm digging, but in the confidence that there is gold to be found, you know, in the confidence that you, you look long enough, you pray long enough over the word and you will find treasure there. Hmm. Yeah. So, so that became my dissertation. What was the process to turn that into something that was like a published work? Yeah. After defending the dissertation, one really helpful thing is that your examiners will sometimes suggest publishers 
that they think are a good fit um, for the work. Mine suggested to me Baylor University Press. So a week later, I sent an email and um, the editors at, at Baylor were very happy to receive and consider the work. You know, that, that started a, a considerably lengthy process where um, it has to go through blind peer review. So it gets feedback from multiple scholars from around the world who are specialists in that discipline. And then uh, I had to take that feedback and integrate um, uh, recommendations into the manuscript of the book while simultaneously uh, making edits to move from dissertation style writing to like readable writing. Uh, anybody who's ever read an academic dissertation, uh, the rule is you tell people what you're going to tell them, you tell them, and then you tell people what you told them, which is just a really dry and sort of difficult plotting way to move through a book. So there was a, there was a considerable amount of uh, enlivening of the text, uh, making it have a pastoral voice, not merely a scholarly voice. Um, but fortunately, uh, six years after starting the project with the PhD, the book uh, was published in November of 2022. So it took you six years to answer your wife, you're saying? Yeah, I mean, <laughs> three years to get the dissertation and then another three to mm. to move towards that answer actually being out there in the world. Yeah, that's great. So uh, last question on it. The uh, is it is it a book? It's thick. I see that. Is it a book you pick up and read or is it a commentary on each of the imprecatory psalms? Is it a, a blending of both? How do you how do you use it? No, it's not. It's not a commentary. It's it's written to be a, a read through book uh, where I deal with the imprecatory psalms as a whole. And what I'm trying to do is offer a vision for how those psalms fit into the story that the Bible is telling. And then I ask, okay, how does the church fit into that same story? And the idea there is if I can understand how the Psalms fit into the story and how we fit into the story, then I can begin to understand how I ought to relate to those Psalms as well. Ultimately, with Jesus standing smack dab in the middle as the culmination of redemptive history and as the one to whom the Psalms of justice and every other Psalm testify. So, do, do, are the Christians to pray imprecatory psalms? I, I say absolutely. Uh, my, the thesis of the work is that the imprecatory psalms are more than morally permissible. They're more than morally acceptable. They are ethically necessary dimensions of our piety. If Christians, and the Christian church at large, is to faithfully exercise our vocation in the world... So I see that praying for justice, praying for the just action of God is an essential element of what it means to be the royal priesthood of God. And that is a loaded term. I'm not not going to tell the story, but I, I map I from it. Adam all the way to the New Jerusalem that there is a royal and priestly vocation for the people of God and praying for God's action for the sake of justice is a key part of the way that we exercise that in his world. Do, do you sing them? Yeah. I mean, uh, that's, that's something that we 
have done at Trinity Church uh, and integrating sung psalms into our corporate worship and even our private piety is something that I, I want to be a continuing journey as we become more familiar with the Psalter as the songbook of the Bible. One of the ways that I frame it is that God has written songs. He's, he's scripted them for us. And like every songwriter, he wants other people to sing his songs. And so we want to be people who sing the songs of God. That's awesome. Well, great, Trevor. I've enjoyed the conversation. Thank you for that. I look forward to seeing uh, what happens at GA. Uh, and, you know, you, you I can't wait to hear this because I think you're going to come in crystal clear. We both have the same microphone, but mine is not on. <laughs> So I, it's my, my computer mic is horrible. So I hope this is, uh, it's always happens. I go selecting things and, and I'm supposed to, uh, anyway. Yeah, anyhow, it, it's, <laughs> it can be a mess to make sure that all the right boxes are clicked at the bottom of these screens, but I've, I've heard you without any issue whatsoever. Okay. Well, that's good to hear. You have, uh, you have any closing thoughts or, or words or anything you want to say? Otherwise, uh, we'll, we'll close it out. Yeah, I, I, I just want to reiterate something that's been in the background of everything that I've tried to say, and, and that is that I think that this whole process shows us what is possible when we listen to one another well. Um, th there are ways of working for change and even uh, approving overtures that are, are sort of my way or the highway. It can be an entrenched entrenched position we can think we've got one bite at the apple either you accept or reject this proposal but this i think has has modeled a a different way that an overture can be passed uh, and sent to the assembly but even that is held with an open hand as a provisional starting point for dialogue for debate for discussion for consensus building a and then we can take another bite at the apple to try and improve that and to honor folks uh, with whom we may very well disagree, but all towards the aim of blessing the church and giving the assembly something that we can be unified on rather than divided. So I, I would just encourage um, the PCA at large to, to consider what possibilities there are for fruitful dialogue uh, and for charitable listening to one another and for seeking good aims, good objectives, in ways that take into account the fears, concerns, doubts, questions that other people who aren't you may bring to the table. I think that that gives us a, a profitable way forward to do something beautiful uh, for the Presbyterian Church in America. And and it's been a real joy to be a part of that for the past couple of months and, and even to have this conversation with you, which I think has been a model of the kind of dialogue uh, that that we both believe can can bless our denomination. Well, thanks for that, Trevor. I, I, I do agree with you. I appreciate you, you being willing to come on and um, and get this out there, and, and hopefully it'll stimulate even more dialogue. And so uh, thanks again. And uh, this is Presbyterian and Reformed Churchman. I'm Pastor George signing off. Uh, I do want to say Birmingham Theological Seminary does sponsor this podcast in they have programs for everybody from Master's in Counseling, Master's in Biblical Studies, Master of Divinity programs, Doctor of Ministry programs, and Certificate programs for ruling elders. And so, uh, Trevor, I do think you 
are a churchman. Uh, you moderate our presbytery, uh, Piedmont Triad Presbytery. You've served on overtures a number of years, and you've done the work on this overture, I can tell. And so uh, thanks again for coming on. Thanks for having me, George. It's been a pleasure.